Amen. It's good to see you guys. Thank you so much for being here. Um, this is a great Sunday, a beautiful day out there. Last Sunday was awesome. We had our anniversary Sunday. Uh, thank you, everybody that brought food and fed me lunch. I'm expecting that again this Sunday. If you didn't bring me something, you're on my naughty list. Let's say it that way. No, we had a good time last, last week. And uh, one of the things that we are starting uh, for the fall are connection groups. Um, they, they launched this week, but it's not too late to get plugged up and plugged in. There, we've got a sign-up sheet there in the foyer as you're leaving. Uh, there are several opportunities. I'd really encourage you to take a look and see what fits for you and your family uh, and find some place to get plugged in. It is so important that we have Christian community. It's so important that you've got some people in your life that are praying for you and that you're praying for and that you're encouraging and they're encouraging you. We cannot do this faith journey without each other. Amen? So say, take some time before you leave and check that out and get plugged into an opportunity. Uh, today I want to talk to you about those moments in life that uh, reality doesn't meet our expectations. Have you ever encountered that? I'd say if you're over the age of three, you probably have. Uh, sometimes in life we, we go and let's say we vote for a candidate and we think this candidate is so much better than the other candidate, and they're going to get in office, and things are going to be so much better, and then they actually turn out to be a lot worse. Uh, we've experienced that. Maybe you got uh, the, uh, a shot of some sort that was supposed to protect you, and then you masked, and you social distanced, and you did all the things, and then you still ended up with some virus. Uh, that happens. Uh, maybe you thought, and I've heard this before, people come to me, and they're like, you know, we're really having a hard time, but I think once we get married, then all of our problems will go away. Doesn't work like that, does it? Sometimes uh, our, our expectations don't match reality, and I see it a lot in faith. I see a lot of people that they come to Christ, and they get baptized, and they start praying, they start reading the Bible, and they start coming to church, and then they think, well, now I'm not going to have any problems because i got Jesus in my life, and so my hair's never going to turn gray, and I'm never going to gain any weight, and my kids are always going to listen to me, and my roof's not going to leak, and my car's not going to break down, and there they are stranded on the side of the road. Their pants don't fit. Their hair's falling out. Their kids won't listen to them. That's how life is. Uh, and so what do we do in situations like that? When, when expectations don't meet reality, oftentimes we're disappointed. Oftentimes we're discouraged. Oftentimes we feel like quitting. We feel like, well, it, why, why even try? If this is the kind of stuff that happens when you try your hardest and you do your best and still things don't work out, then why keep going? Uh, so what options do you have? Well, you've got two options, really. You can either change your reality, which isn't always possible. Like sometimes you get a diagnosis that you can't help anything about. Sometimes somebody ends up in office and you can't do anything about it. Sometimes there's a mandate or you get fired or your girlfriend breaks up with you and you can't do anything about it. Uh, and so you can try and change your reality, but more often than not, what you need to do is change your expectations. You need to change the way that you're looking at things. Uh, the disciples in Mark chapter 9, they are in need of a reality check. They're in need of a change of expectations and perceptions. Just six days before the passage that we're going to read, uh, they had finally realized Jesus' true identity. Peter cries out and he declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And finally, uh, the disciples and Peter, they all realize and they all affirm that Jesus is God in the flesh and he's worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. And, and with that realization for them, uh, this word, the Christ, was a very important uh, thought-out title. 
Uh, it's an expectation that their people had had for thousands of years that God would send a promised, anointed man who would come and just tear down all the bad guys, lift up all the underdogs, rule from Jerusalem with compassion and justice, and things would be as they should be. And so there was this expectation with this title of the Christ that this person was going to be a political savior and all their problems would go away. But then Jesus, uh, after, right after they've made this declaration, they finally get it, Jesus begins to correct their misunderstanding of what it means for him to be the Christ and what it means for them to follow Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, okay, I am the Savior of the world, and as the Savior of the world, what's going to happen to me is I'm going to be handed over to my enemies, and I'm going to be tried, and I'm going to be executed, and it's going to be terrible, and you're going to watch it all take place. And remember, Peter was so flipped upside down, that didn't match with anything that he was expecting, that he rebuked Jesus. You remember that story. And then Jesus goes on. He says, not only am I going to be destroyed, not only are they going to hurt me, but if you want to follow me, if you want to be part of my kingdom, then you have to be willing to follow in my footsteps, and it's going to be a very painful process. The disciples were crushed in hearing that news. Their expectations didn't meet reality, and so Jesus ministers to his disciples. Remember, he leads them up the holy mountain. He gets to the top. He pulls back the curtain, and he allows them to see for just a moment his glory. And in that moment, Peter's like, this is amazing. This is good, Lord. We should stay here forever and ever. Remember? And this was a way for Jesus to say, okay, life isn't always the way it seems. Like on the outside, you're going to see my body is destroyed. You're going to see these people, these enemies, these evildoers are going to do terrible things to me. But understand, they can't touch my glory. There's part of me that they cannot destroy. And so Jesus pulls back the curtain, and he allows them to see that as a ministry to his disciples. He says, I know you don't understand. I know you don't like God's plan, but in your darkest moment, know that God is working in an unseen realm. If you're faithful to the end, Jesus says to his disciples, if you, if you will make the difficult journey all the way up the mountain, then at a certain point, I'll pull back the curtain and I'll allow you to see my goodness. I'll allow you to see my glory. And so the disciples are hearing all this. They're seeing all this. It couldn't be any more clear, but they still don't get it. And that's where we find them, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. Can I encourage you to bring your Bibles to church? Can I encourage you to do that? You get extra credit points in heaven when you bring your Bibles to church. I can't find a scripture and verse for that yet, but I'm sure it's in there. If you don't have a Bible, we'll get you one or a scripture notebook. Uh, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why did, the, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restore all things, Jesus said. When, why, is it, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. My prayer today is that all of us will have a reality check about the nature of this life and our role as believers in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all my friends that have gathered here today, for everybody that's watching online. I pray a blessing on each and every one. 
Lord, each and every one of us, we have a plan, a purpose, and we also have problems that we're carrying through this life. And it can sometimes be difficult. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will come into this room, that you will speak through me, and that you will minister to every single person that's here. Lord, correct us where we're wrong. Convict us of our sin. Comfort us, Lord, in our suffering. We need you. We long for you. We can't do this without you. That's why we're here. That's why we sing these songs. That's why we open your word. That's why we gather around it. That's why we bow our heads and we close our eyes. Lord, because we revere you. We long for you. So please, Lord, honor our request and be with us today. Be with us in a very real and tangible way. Speak through me, Lord. I beg you. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, pray a prayer something like this. Father, speak to me. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 9, verse 9, they're coming down the mountain. Jesus orders them, don't tell anybody what you've seen. You've just seen me transfigured. I pulled back my glory. I, saw, I showed you my goodness in all of its fullness. You've seen this. You know it's now confirmed. I am the Messiah. You've seen it with your own eyes. But don't tell anybody until after I've risen from the dead. This is kind of confusing. They have the greatest news the world has ever known, and yet Jesus says to them, don't say anything to anybody about it yet. Jesus often did this. It was like a mystery, uh, this, this gospel mystery. Why is Jesus always like, he, he pulls back the curtain, he allows people to see what he's capable of, and then he tells them, don't, don't say anything about it. Mark chapter 1, verse 44, I'll just give you a couple examples. Jesus heals a man of leprosy. Nobody's ever seen this before, but right before their eyes, the leprosy just falls off of this man. And Jesus says to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. How, how am I supposed to keep this quiet, Jesus? Mark chapter 5, verse 43, Jairus' daughter is dead. Jesus rises her from the dead. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. Over and over and over again, Jesus proves that he's God, and he says, okay, now that you figured it out, don't say anything to anybody about it. Why is Jesus doing that? Jesus didn't want people evangelizing with an incomplete gospel. Jewish people had already, in their mind for thousands of years, they had developed this faulty understanding of what it meant for the Christ to come. The multitudes had already tried to force Jesus to be their king. You remember that story? He fed the 5,000. They come to Jesus. They, they desire to force him to be their king. And so that was their expectation. That's what they're looking for, a, a, a physical, political ruler. Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to remain quiet about what you've seen until I rise from the dead because to broadcast his goodness and glory at this point in the story would further confuse the crowd about why Jesus had come. You see, Jesus didn't come to be a healer, to be a miracle worker, to be a political revolutionary, or to be a teacher. Jesus didn't come for any of those things. All of those activities simply confirmed his character. You see, uh, those things are consistent with his character. It isn't what he does, that's who he is. De Jesus doesn't just heal people, he's a healer. He, he doesn't just teach people, he's a teacher. He doesn't just lead people, he's a leader. He's a provider, he's a life giver. That's consistent with his character, that's what he does. I mean, that's just who he is. It's not necessarily just what he does. And so his first appearance wasn't about any of those things. 
Jesus, in his own words, he says, I have come to seek and save the lost. He came to live perfectly. He came to die painfully. He came to rise victoriously. That's what Jesus came for. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved to die. He gave us the victory we couldn't earn. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That was his mission when in his first appearance. So Jesus wanted his disciples to, to tell no one until after he had risen from the dead because there is no Christ without the cross. There is no Christ without the cross. Without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no fellowship with the Father in heaven. There is no victory over the darkness. There is no kingdom of God. Now, I saw that to say this. I'm very frustrated with the state of the church at large, especially in our country, especially American Christian culture. The most influential churches in our country, the churches and the preachers that you are most likely to watch on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, they attract a crowd by preaching about Christ the healer and the provider and the protector and the life giver. They'll preach sermons like your best life now, become a better you, prosper where you're planted. Uh, Their message revolves around the idea, if you will surrender to Jesus and if you'll follow Jesus, then he will lead you to comfort and abundance and happiness. This is their message over and over and over again. But what you don't hear preached from these big platforms is Christ crucified. That's what you don't hear. It's hard to attract the crowd with that message because that message is hard to swallow. This is the message of Christ crucified. Peter stands before the multitude in the book of Acts, and he says, I'm here because you killed Christ, but God raised him from the dead. Your sin nailed Jesus to a tree, but God in his mercy and grace raised Jesus from the dead. Repent, Peter says. Repent, you've got sin in your life turn away from it, confess it, turn away from it, believe and be saved. Deny yourself. That's what Jesus says over and over. Count the cost. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Deny your comfort. Deny your happiness. Pick up your cross and follow me every day. And here's the truth for many of you, unfortunately, This gospel, which isn't a prosperity gospel, it's not a name and claiming a gospel, but it's inching in that direction. This gospel that says, if I just follow Jesus, my life will get easier and it'll get better. This gospel is the gospel many of you have been raised on. Because the most prominent churches in this area, they have thrived on this type of preaching and this type of message. A self-help gospel, a pragmatic gospel, a three points in a poem gospel. And as a result, many of you, many Christians in our county, they have an incomplete understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't come to make you comfortable. Jesus came to save your soul. 
Jesus says to his disciples, don't talk about me unless you include my death, my burial, and my resurrection. It's an incomplete gospel to talk about the healing power and the eternal wisdom and the divine protection if your message doesn't begin and end with the atoning sacrifice. It starts and it ends with the cross of Christ, with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. If we've missed that, we've missed the whole point. That's why Jesus says, don't don't say anything until I've risen from the dead. Verse 10, they kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Now, this is what I love about the disciples. I love and I'm frustrated by them, and you should be too. We all relate to the disciples because here's the truth. No offense to you, no offense to me, but we're idiots. We're idiots, right? Six days previous to this, Jesus clearly lays out to them what it means for him to die and rise again. They've heard this over and over and over again. They, it's not that they don't understand the concept. They understand the concept just fine. They refuse to accept the reality. We're guilty of that. How many times that I've come to somebody as a pastor and, and I've confronted somebody in their sin, I've tried to lead them in the right direction. I've had difficult conversations with people. And and understand, it's not just our job as pastors and leaders of this church just to come and pat you on the back and tell you everything's all right. Sometimes we got to come to you and say, listen, you're acting like an idiot. You're acting like a knucklehead. You're not doing what God's asked you to do. God's got a better plan for you than the one you've got for yourself. Sometimes we got to say some hard things to you. And this is is what happens so many times when I confront people in their sin. They'll say, well... uh, I, I, know, I know the Bible says that, but, and then they fill it in with whatever their ideology, whatever the world has communicated to them, whatever other gospel that they've wanted, they've, they've tried to, they're trying to, you know, match up their preferences and God's word, and it just doesn't work like that. And I say, well, do you believe the Bible? And they say, yeah, I mean, I believe the Bible, but you know, it is 3,000 years old, as if it's lost relevance. That's our nature. It's our nature to fight with to argue with, to refuse to believe what God says. That's exactly what the disciples are doing here. Well, what does he mean rising from the dead? As if it wasn't clearly laid out for him. Verse 11, then they ask him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, this seems really random, doesn't it? It's like, well, I'm lost here because we were just talking, we're coming down the mountain, Jesus says, don't say anything, and, and they're talking about rising from the dead. And then all of a sudden, it's just like jumps to Elijah. What does Elijah have to do with all this? They know that Jesus is the Christ. They're absolutely convinced of that. Uh, Peter uh, declares it. Christ confirms it. It's obvious. But in their vision of the Messiah, they see a political savior. They see a person who will destroy the Romans, who will punish the corrupt Jewish ruling class, who will lift out of poverty everybody that's struggling and who will rule with justice and compassion. So when they think of the Christ, that's what they're expecting. They say, okay, this is the man who's going to do all of those things. And this is their understanding. This is what they've been taught for thousands of years. They've been taught before all that stuff happens, Elijah's going to come. And Elijah is going to prepare a way for the Messiah to come in and be the political savior that we've been looking for. That's what the Old Testament taught, that Elijah would come first. So the disciples are saying, okay, Jesus, we know that you're the Messiah, but where's Elijah? 
we know that you are. Like, we, we just saw it up on the mountain. But we still haven't seen, where's Elijah? Where's the military victory? How come nothing's happened politically yet? Where, why are the Romans still here? How come J- Jerusalem isn't the capital of the world yet? This is exactly what we do when we're fighting God's conviction or his calling on our life. Truth, sp- plainly spoken to you. And, and, and people say, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I hear that truth, but what about X, Y, and Z? Come to people. You're living in sin. Oh, yeah, okay, but what about their sin? What about there? You're not talking about their sin. No, I'm talking to you right now. I'll talk to them later. I'm talking to you right now. What about their sin? You're, you're not living according to, uh, you're living according to the acts of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, I'll read the passage to you. Yeah, but what about John 3, 16? Because God said he loved me just the way I am. What about that? We want all the blessings. We don't want any of the burdens. We want the salvation without any sacrifice. We say things like this. Well, the Bible says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, he's, he's got abundant resources. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So why am I still eating spam? Where's the steak? Right? The Bible says that he is the healer. By his stripes, I am healed. Well, why am I still sick? Why did I get COVID? Why am I having a hard time breathing? Why is this stuff happening to me? We know that you're the Messiah, But where is Elijah? Verse 12, Elijah does come. He comes first and restores all things, Jesus replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus affirms their interpretation of the Scripture. He says, you're right. You're on the right track. Elijah does come first. And then he redirects them because they are asking the wrong question. Their focus is off. Jesus says, yes, the scriptures teach that the Christ doesn't come without Elijah. The scriptures also teach that the Christ doesn't come without suffering. Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is that? Doesn't that sound familiar? Where does that come from? How do you know that? From the cross. As Jesus is hanging there, nailed to the tree. All his enemies have surrounded him. He's dying. What does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a prophecy from the Old Testament. Jesus is pointing us back, and he's saying all of this was part of God's plan. I am the Messiah, and in order for me to save the world and have victory over the darkness and bring my people into the promised land, this must happen. This is all part, this suffering is all part of God's plan. Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers have closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Jesus is telling his disciples here, stop cherry-picking the scriptures to fit your narrative and promote your agenda. 
you're focused on all the passages that say Elijah's going to come. He's going to make a straight way for the Savior. The Savior's going to be here. He's going to be a political champion. He's going he's to right all the wrongs. We're going to live in prosperity and abundance. You're nitpicking. You're cherry-picking all these verses, and you're not paying any attention to the even more important verses that the Christ will come and suffer. Stop cherry-picking the scriptures to fit your narrative and promote your agenda. Is that a lesson we need to learn in 2021? Yep. Kirkwood came back from Somerset this past week. He was telling me this on the golf course yesterday, and I got a big kick out of it. Driving back from Somerset, and he passed on the way a vape shop. You guys know what vape is. If If you are vaping, I would strongly encourage you, don't do that. So it's a vape shop. You can buy the cartridges and the whatever the thing is. I don't know. I don't, I, I'm not educated on that, but whatever. The name of the vape shop, this is what intrigued me. The name of the vape shop was James 414. That's the name of the vape shop. It's a, it's a Bible verse. For homework, not right now because i got other things to say. For homework, I want you to look up what that passage means. James chapter 4, verse 14. It's, it's nitpicking. It's cherry-picking the scriptures to fit your agenda. Uh, I recently saw, uh, I think on uh, Facebook or YouTube, there was a, a Republican, I think a um, state representative in Georgia, and they were having a hearing, and she quoted a Bible verse in the hearing as part of her argumentation. The Bible verse is this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. She quoted from the King James, the authorized version, just to make it extra. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call And she emphasized this, and election secure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, this verse, in context, is talking about the call and election of eternal salvation. It's talking about salvation. She used it in reference to voting. Now, you'll look up James 4.14 in a little bit. Some of you already have. And it's sad. It's sad when you realize that so many Christians are doing the same exact thing in their own lives over and over and over. What's everybody's favorite, favorite Bible verse? Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Isn't it? That's what everybody's got tattooed on them. If you got this tattooed on you, love your heart, bless you. We'll work with you, okay? Okay? This is what Philippians 4, 13 says. I can do What? All things, you got it memorized. It's on your, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what it says. Now, this is what we, we apply it. And we say, okay, what that means is God is going to give me the strength. I'm going to score the winning touchdown. I'm going to pass the test that I didn't study for. I'm going to get the girlfriend that's way over my, out of my league. God, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, friends, that verse is not about you becoming some victorious champion. It's not about that. In context, Paul is talking about, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm eating filet mignon or whether I don't even have spam to eat. I can do all things through Christ. You see how it's different? This is what we do. The Bible, friends, is not a self-help book. It's not a self-help book. It is the living and active word of God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts to the heart of every matter concerning life and righteousness. 
You do not have a right to revise God's word to match your preferences. The Bible should be revising you to match God's ways. Here's the theme of the scriptures from cover to cover. You, you want a summary statement of the Bible, here it is. You're going to love this, by the way. God has prepared a promised land for you. He has made a way for you to get to that promised land. But that way requires you to endure unjust suffering. That's the scriptures in a nutshell. All of it will point to the glory of God. Verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come, Jesus says, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Elijah's come? We missed it? Where, where's the restoration? Where's, where's the revival? How come the Romans are still here? How come Jerusalem's not the capital? What's going on? Did we miss it? They were confused because their expectation doesn't, doesn't, didn't match reality. So many of us, we have an expectation of what God is going to do, and it doesn't match reality, and it's confusing. But understand today, be reminded today, that God works in mysterious ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways above our ways. There are going to be times in your life that God is doing something in you, through you, to you, for you, and you're not going to get it. And sometimes you just got to step back and say, I trust God. Where is Elijah, the one who prepared the way for the Christ? Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 13. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. Verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Jesus says you were expecting a political hype man. You got a prophet dressed in camel hair. John the Baptist was the Elijah you were waiting for, but not looking for. Matthew chapter 17, verse 12, this is a parallel passage to Mark chapter 9. But I tell you, Jesus is saying, I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the herald that made a way for our Lord. John the Baptist baptized all of Judea. The New Testament says all of Judea came to him to be baptized in the Jordan River. Jesus said of John the Baptist, no man has been born to woman who is greater. Jesus says of all the people ever born, John the Baptist is the greatest. What happened to John the Baptist? He did everything right. Jesus respected, wouldn't you love for Jesus to respect you in that way, to say that of you? Man, you are really winning in your spiritual life if Jesus says that about you. What happened to John the Baptist? What happened to him? They did whatever they pleased to him. They, chopped it, they kept him in prison for a, a long time. Then at the end of that, they decided, we're done with this guy. They chopped his head off and put it on a silver platter. They did a dance around it. They celebrated he was dead. Yes, Jesus Christ has come. Yes, Jesus Christ is coming. Yes, salvation has come. Yes, salvation is coming. Yes, victory is coming. Yes, the kingdom is coming. Yes, heaven is coming. But first, you know what comes? 
suffering. First, you know what comes? Suffering. And it comes for all of us. I wish that I could get up here every single Sunday and preach a rah-rah, smiling preacher, Joel Osteen message. That's what I wish I could do. We could, we could do some feel-good music. We could play um, some, uh, let's see, with some, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a band that everybody likes, and yeah, that's impossible. So anyway, we could play some real popular secular music, you know, that's trendy, and, you know, we, we'd all bounce along with it. We could, you know, really get hyped up. And then I could tell you some really corny preacher jokes because I got a bunch of them and I never use them anymore, but I could use some corn. And I like, I like my corny preacher jokes. And then we could pat each other on the back and drink some good coffee. And then we could all go home and take a nap. Wouldn't that be a beautiful Sunday? I wish I could do that. I really do. And I know that's what many of you want. You would love to come in here and get a pat on the back and, a, you know, that a boy, it's going to be okay. You would love that because your life is stressful. And, and tomorrow you're going to go work and you're going to deal with all sorts of knuckleheads and idiots and then the world just seems like it's unraveling. And so you would like for at least an hour on Sunday somebody to tell you something positive. You would love that. And I wish I could give it to you Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But here's the truth of the matter. We are in a war. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against a virus. It's not against a political party. Our fight is against the evil powers and principalities. And listen to me, that fight is coming for you, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you're ready for it or not. It's been coming for you since the moment you were born. It's been coming for you since Genesis chapter three. It's been coming for you since Matthew chapter one, when Jesus is born and Herod comes and tries to kill all the kids in Bethlehem. Satan has been trying to undo the work of God since the beginning of time. He has not stopped. He does not sleep. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour you. And the moment, listen, the moment that you step forth and you started crying and peeing all over the place in the delivery room, the devil's been trying to take you out. You understand that? We are in a war and it's not ever been more obvious than it is right now. Biblical values and God's created order are under attack. Traditional nuclear family under attack. Biblical masculinity under attack. Biblical motherhood under attack. Monogamous heterosexual marriage under attack. Biological gender under attack. The rights of personal property under attack. The virtue of hard work and honesty under attack. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of informed consent. All of these things are under attack and it's happening in our time. And so you can be one of those Christians that sticks your head in the sand and you can be like that meme, you know, that dog that's in the building that's burning down. You guys are familiar with that? And the dog says in the little caption, everything is fine. As the building's burning down around him, you can be that meme or you can pull your head up out of the stand and realize I'm in a war and prepare yourself for battle. Here's the truth that Jesus conveys to his followers as they're coming down the mountain. 
And this is what you need to realize about your place in the world. Life is hard, and then you die. Life is hard. Listen to me. Life, Joel Osteen is not going to tell you this. Life is hard, and then you die. That's going to be the title of my, my first book. Life is hard, and then you die. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Paul said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we as Christians are to be pitied above all men. Why is that? Why are we to be pitied? If we don't have the hope of eternal life, then that means that our life is marked by suffering, we're pressed, we're crushed, we're knocked down, we're persecuted for nothing. Jesus said, in this world, he didn't say you would have abundance. He didn't say you would have comfort. He didn't say you'd have happiness. You know what he said? In this world, you will have trouble. It's hard. The way of Christ is hard. Jesus said, the builder counts the cost before he starts building. Count the cost. It's difficult. Your enemy, the devil, would love nothing more than destroy you. Godless people in this world, they delight in nothing more than seeing a Christian stumble. They love it. You are walking a narrow path, that's what Jesus said. This path that we're walking, it's contrary to everything that comes natural to us. God is trying to guide us, and we want to argue with God. Well, where's Elijah? That's what we want to do. It's contrary. And then we're living in a culture that is contrary to everything that we hold dear. And all the things that we hold dear, all the things that we value, all the things that we say are given to us as a gift from God, our rights from God, are the way God has ordered this universe. All of those things are under attack in our culture right now. It's hard. And then as you're walking this journey, what do they say? Um, No good deed goes unpunished. Isn't that the saying? Doesn't that, isn't that the way it feels sometimes? The more I do things right, it feels like sometimes the more things go wrong. And so the, the immediate reward of following Christ is so easy to overlook. And so you're going to be tempted to perpetually be disappointed and discouraged and give up. But this is what we see all throughout the scriptures, all throughout church history. The early church, they didn't live in abundance. They didn't live in comfort. They didn't live in safety. They didn't, their happiness wasn't their primary ambition. They cut off John the Baptist's head. They tortured Jesus on a crucifix. Jesus' first followers, Jesus said of them, you, if you follow me, you're not going to have any place to lay your head. The first century church, the second generation Christians, the ones after Peter and James and John, you know how they worshiped? It wasn't in a big fancy building like this with all the beautiful lights and the, the PA, you know what it was? It was in a cave under the city of Rome by candlelight. They were nervous that the Romans were going to come in and rip them out and go and douse them with oil and light them on, on fire. Why would you expect any different? Friends, come to terms with your place in this world. This is the way I like to say it. Embrace the suck. Sometimes life sucks, right? It does. Sometimes it sucks. Embrace it. Embrace it. 
It's part of your journey through this world with Jesus. Embrace it. Why? Why? Why keep doing this? I was faithful, and my spouse left me. I did all the right things, and I still got diagnosed. I've been, I've been doing everything that they said I needed to do, and I still haven't accomplished the goal. Why stick with it? Why speak up for the truth? Why live a countercultural life? Why crucify your fleshly desires? Why fight the devil? Why resist temptation? Why preach the gospel? Because it feels like we're banging our head up against the wall. It feels like we're not getting thanked for any of it. It feels like nothing's working out. Why, why stick with it? Because at moments along this journey, Jesus will lead you up a holy mountain. And you'll get to the top of that mountain and he'll pull back the curtain and he will allow you just a glimpse of his goodness and his glory. And in that moment, you will, feel, you will be overshadowed by his light and you will feel comforted and you will feel hopeful and you will have that peace and you'll have that joy and you'll have that strength and it will feel so good. It will feel so incredible. You'll say to Jesus, isn't it good that we're in this place? Let's just stay here. Lord, please let me just stay here in this moment. And it's a place you'll never want to leave. And Jesus will whisper to you and say, not yet. Because there's more work for you to do at the bottom of this mountain. And he'll take you down the mountain and you'll go into the valley and he'll have given you just enough strength to fight that next fight, to battle that next battle, to keep doing the right things even when all the wrong things are happening. And then when you're running out of energy and you're at the end of your rope and you don't feel like you can do anymore, you can't fight anymore, you can't do the right things anymore because everything's going wrong, Jesus is going to take you by the hand again and he's going to lead you up that holy mountain and he'll pull back the curtain and he'll allow you once again to see his goodness and glory. He'll say, hey, The fight is still worth fighting. I know you can't see it right now. I know it's hard to see. I know it's hard to feel, but I'm still working. My promises are still true. Stick with it. Until that day. When life punches you right in the mouth and your expectations don't match reality, don't be caught off guard. Don't melt down. Don't give up. Don't argue with God. Embrace it. Suffering is part of your journey. Fight the good fight. Keep doing what you know is right, even when everything is going wrong, because the Lord Jesus is with you. He understands your pain, and he will empower you to navigate it. In this world, you will have trouble. Here's Jesus' promise, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Christians, we are in a war. Make no mistake about it. The devil is trying to take you out. This world hates you. We're in a war, but this is a war that we will win. Life is hard, and then you die. Jesus is king, and you will rise. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your promises. They're forever trustworthy and true. You promised Elijah would come, he came. You promised the the Savior would come, and he came. They came in unexpected ways, but they came. Lord, help us to hold on to that promise today. 
There are people in this room, they're reeling, they're confused. They don't know what's going on. They don't know how to get, they're going to get through it. Reassure them today. Reassure them, Lord, not that it'll be easy, not that they'll never have problems, not that they won't have trouble. Reassure them that you are with them. Reassure them that this journey, that this suffering, that this pain, that this injustice, it is actually part of your plan. You have not abandoned them. You have not forgotten about them. Actually, you are more near to them than you've ever been. Remind them of that today. Reassure them of that today, that you are taking them by the hand and you are leading them through this difficulty. Lord, help us to fight the good fight of faith even when it feels like we're fighting alone, even when it feels like we're fighting an uphill battle. Empower us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.